Hello and welcome to the Potshot Podcast, an Arsenal podcast for nerds. I'm Alex Towles. And I'm Alex Collings. And it's been over a week since we did a podcast because we were accidentally way too busy to talk about all of the football that happened last week. It genuinely has nothing to do with the fact that we were rubbish. We were really looking forward to doing a pod dissecting Brentford and Manchester City and then it just didn't work out at the back end of last week. So we were like, you know what? Sod it. Let's see how the Villa game goes and see if that leans into what we wanted to talk about or if it goes against it. And I think it's going to be really helpful, really adding to the discussion, having watched the Villa game as well. Uh, So what we're going to do this week is because there's been three games, that's a lot of games. We're not going to go through each one individually. Instead, we're going to try and focus on some of the different themes that came up throughout these games, Um, mainly of us not being that great, which is a new feeling that we're trying to get used to. So, let's start with a question. A question that Alex Collings wrote down, and I assume he wants me to ask him. (laughs) Alex Collings, are we becoming predictable? So I think it's true, um, but, I mean, maybe it's worth breaking down why it's more predictable. I think the consistent lineup that we have hasn't really impacted our ability to build out of the first phase because we have a lot of fluidity in that phase and a lot of different ways to build up that we can pretty much tailor depending on how the opposition sets up out of possession versus us. So for example, when we have, you know, three pronged presses against us, we use a very flat back four. Sometimes we use Zinchenko coming in narrow to build out literally inverted from the first phase. Sometimes he stays out wide. You actually saw against Brentford the first five minutes, he was staying wide, nice and flat. We immediately changed it after five minutes thinking, okay, cool, Sinchenko actually starting narrow is the best way to build out. And I think that has made us pretty much versus every team in the league beyond maybe the Leeds game where we struggled. We've been very good at getting out of that first phase without much trouble. So... I guess there's a sense of it's predictable in terms of who we're going to use, but because there's so much fluidity, so many options in building out there, it's not that easy to stop us. Then we get to the second phase, and this is where it's been different since the World Cup beforehand. We had a lot of nice left-sided rotations, which gave us an option building out there. And again, you know who we're going to use. We know we've got Xhaka, you know we've got Sinchenko, you know we've got Martinelli, and we had Gabby J pulling out wide, right? It's very different from knowing who we're going to use and being able to stop it. And that's where the predictability question comes in because we use those rotations so well to dismark players and to be able to find players free and build up that, yeah, that it was very effective in terms of how we moved through. And that was literally from the first game of the season. We saw it versus Crystal Palace. We built up really well through that after the first phase, getting into the second phase, those rotations moving it into the final third where we try to, you know, the chance creation phase. Um, the other aspect is before the World Cup, we also had the that middle sort of thing where we kind of used a box midfield at times, which kind of baits the press on and then you free that space in behind. And it's developed better and better since the World Cup, I would even say. But the thing is, the difference now is that it's almost our only way of building now. Or not our only way, but it's our most effective and main way of building into that second, or once we get into that second phase, and then putting it out wide to the wingers, right? So I think teams have clocked onto that in terms of the mid-block shape they take against us is that 
they block off those passing lanes rather than committing too much to the pivot. And then also they're ready for when it goes wide, which is the general thing is if they are blocking, when it goes wide, they double up on the wingers. So so, in, so instead of coming up and trying to press Partey or Jorginho or whoever's playing in that pivot alongside Zinchenko, they're sitting back and just trying to stop... Blocking the passing stop. lanes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Checking I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Sorry, I've been on a long, a long run. But I have been thinking about this um, a lot, right? And then the, what, what they do is, you, you know, you have to leave some options open is that they leave it open to the wings. Again, we're speaking about the Everton game, but I think teams have sort of clocked on. I'm not sure that Everton, you know, people watch the Everton game and, oh, that's how you stop Arsenal. I think it's been something that has been growing. And yeah, but basically that has been what teams have been trying to do against us. They've been sitting mid blocks. I mean, even even Pep in the first half, we'll get onto that later. He went for like a very weird, narrow mid block. This is not something I expect from Pep at all, but it shows that this is something that teams have kind of collectively realized is a really good way of of stopping that sort of central progression we do before we get the ball out wide, right? Then you allow access maybe wide a little bit earlier, but being ready to jump to press once it gets wide. And that's what sort of made the sense that it's more predictable now because that second phase, um, that mid-block works really well against it. I, I suppose when you're at the start of the season, even though you know the players who's going to be doing it and what their skills are, when they're rotating to that extent, it makes it really hard to stop just because you can't apply a man-to-man system to it because the rotations will just tear that to shreds. Whereas in this more static system where there's no not so many rotations, not so many movements, it's a lot easier to put in a somewhat simpler man-to-man-ish system and trust that the man your defender is trying to mark is going to stay roughly in the same space and isn't going to randomly pop up at left-back or striker. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also just, even if you know, again, what type of rotations happen, the whole thing about football is that you can get it once, like, defending out of possession, you can defend it once. Well, sorry, you can defend it. The whole thing about, like, out of possession sort of defending is it's not just being able to know what they're going to do and defend it well once or twice, but also that third time we're preventing that break. And that's sort of what top teams do is they... They put their players in these positions where they rotate or whatever again and again and again until it works. And I guess we haven't been doing those rotations. I actually do want to say that it's weird. I do think this predictability is a thing, but I also think it's coming a little bit late to the point where we are trying to differentiate things again. And I guess this just points to something we've always known about Arteta is that he he's not someone who makes changes before he feels he needs to. Like he, he's not, he's different to Pep. Pep will be trying constantly thinking about how he needs to change the team. Not saying Arteta isn't constantly thinking about it, but he only really commits to it when something big happens. That can be a poor run of form, for example, as we've often seen throughout his time here. Or it can be a big injury, like when Gabby got injured, Arteta said, look, I know that Eddie's not going to be able to do the same sort of things that Gabby did. We're changing the system. This is how we're going to do things post-World Cup, right? Also a big break to be able to, to prepare to do that. What I do think was we've been seeing and we started seeing against Brentford is that suddenly there were more rotations, Xhaka pulling out wide, 
Zinchenko holding really wide in the final third, being able to kind of get Martinelli into those half spaces, into the central channels even, and making late runs through. I think it worked pretty well. There were one or two chances where, you know, he could have maybe done a bit better, he could have got a goal, and then people would be speaking about how well we worked we worked those um those rotations in if it had happened. I even what we saw in that game is we saw one or two runs across the box from from Saka, something we've not seen ever under Arteta in terms of how he uses Saka. So there are definitely ideas that he's trying to work. Um there's also stuff like how often we've been seeing Odegaard in the last three games pulling out wide right again, pulling himself out of the block, which is what he did against Everton as a solution to how often he was getting just completely marked out of the game. Um, I don't think it's necessarily the best way you want to use Odegaard. You really do like him in those central channels where you can kind of do those quick offloads, quick receive, quick play through. You know, he helps speed up the play, he helps catch teams off guard, but it is indication of something we're trying to do to, to work through things. So there are changes that are happening um, now, but it is kind of in response to teams clocking on to us being predictable, I, I would say. Being more predictable than we would be. And I guess my last thing I would add in this long, long, long monologue I've had is it's more predictable than we have been. Um, I still wouldn't say that it's like a, a huge worry you know, like that we're one of the more predictable teams in the league. We're not at all one of the more predictable teams in the league, but we are more predictable than we have been or were early in the season. And I would say that's probably true since the World Cup. It's just teams have clocked on now. Okay. I want to cotton on to and dig into something a little bit more that you said right at the start of that big old monologue, the way you were talking about the doubling up on wingers. We talked about this last episode and how Everton used it to really great effect. You mentioned that it was used by Brentford, but then we haven't really seen that against City or against Villa. I haven't watched the Brentford game. Of the three games that have happened in the last week, I've seen barely any of the Brentford game, whereas I was actually able to catch the City and Villa games live, which was a nice treat for me, being able to watch Arsenal as it happens, as opposed to watching it back. Lovely stuff. But... The point remains, I haven't seen Brentford. You seem to suggest that it didn't really work that well for Brentford. Trying to double up on Omingers, can you expand on that a little bit? I think, well, hmm. if I compare it to the to the Everton game, is that when they doubled up on the wingers, they obviously went for a 4-5-1 out of possession shape. Um, Brentford went for more of a 5-3-2 shape with a bit more of like a man-oriented zonal sort of marking that engages later. So one of my problems with the Brentford game is on rewatch, I don't actually think Brentford were that great in open play in their out of possession against us. I think I wasn't that impressed by them. I think they dropped into their, their low block. They kind of, they dropped too low before engaging with us, which often meant that yeah, you know, they could have someone on Saka. They usually, what they would have is they would have someone coming really tight to him and then they'd have someone have a little bit more space in case he breaks through compared to Everton, who actually pretty much had two men quite aggressive on him. If you talk about that Sean Dyche V, we pushed them back quite well and then we'd often get just inside those spaces in the sort of spaces that Dyche loves to protect, 
we managed to access them pretty well. I think, yeah, basically, I think they, they stopped the winger. They stopped our wingers from really getting through too often. Not not entirely like the way that Everton locked us up. But in doing that, they created other problems that we just didn't capitalize on in the more central areas. Whereas Everton were very good at doubling up on the wingers when it, and then stopping the wingers from pretty much being able to have any joy. And then when it gets paid back in, sort of um, regathering or regrouping really, really well, which I don't think Brentford did. I think our problem versus Brentford is in possession. There was a lack of in-game management, I'd say, from the players rather than from Arteta himself, which was, which was an issue for us in possession that meant we didn't capitalize. And I think what I mean by that is the players were getting into good positions, but we weren't being patient enough. And it's just sort of working the space, working working the width, playing the ball around until we manufacture good chances. We were often getting in positions where we could kind of shoot, but they weren't great chances. I think Zinchenko was a big um, culprit in this in this area. And what that meant is that we went from not capitalizing on really good territory in good positions where we could have worked there, we could have worked against their low block better. We'd actually take shots that, you know, went out well, nowhere from pretty pretty bad area shots to be honest and then that would actually give Everton the chance to kind of take you know to regroup and go from goal kicks and where Everton really dominated us in that game which is why I would say a draw is even a fair result despite us being much better in open play is that from any sort of set piece play whether it be a goal kick whether it be corners they were much better than us and then oh, they were really you, really mean, you said Everton you mean Brentford did I say Everton I meant Brentford, yeah, yeah. And then I would even also say, airily, they just completely dominated us all game. Like, Saliba got completely ragdolled. Saliba got completely ragdolled. They they targeted him. So I would say those two areas of the game, they were just far superior to us, which made it more of an even game. But it's just, it's interesting. In terms of an in-game angle, looking at, in terms of management, looking at the players, is that... They weren't patient enough in working those openings. In the in the surgical way that like you often see City play against low blocks, we weren't doing that. We were getting too frustrated taking too many shots from subpar areas. And then that immediately then turned into advantages for Brentford because even though they weren't great on their counter, I would say, I think we handled that fine. When it went out for goal kicks, it meant that they could take advantage of those goal kicks, both in terms of aerial... Um, strength and also being able to organize higher up and you know winning those second balls which is when they were quite dangerous it's interesting that you say that in the Brentford game we were rushing and kind of trying too hard to force the issue because from my viewing of the City game and of the first half of the Villa game at least we kind of had the opposite problem it kind of seemed to me that we were being a little bit hesitant in key moments and lacked a little bit of ruthlessness that we needed to make that final pass or take the final shot. There was a couple of times, I remember in the in the City game, for example, there was one time where we had this really lovely flowing move in the first half that arrived at the feet of Saka in the right half space and he just needed to take the touch out of his feet and shoot. And he took one, two, three too many touches and then didn't get the shot away I don't think I can't remember if he got the shot away or not if he did get the shot away it was much worse than it could have been 
So my kind of takeaway from watching those games live was that we were too hesitant, not willing to force the issue when needed. But it's interesting to hear that apparently earlier in the week we had the opposite problem. It's interesting that you kind of speak about like ruthlessness and forcing the issue as one and the same, because I think we lacked a ruthlessness against Brentford from rushing things too much. I, I mean, I mean more like, not forcing the issue necessarily. More um, if there's a split second opportunity to push the ball out your feet and shoot or play a slide for a pass, taking that opportunity then and not kind of seeing it but hesitating and then losing the opportunity. That's what I mean by not forcing the issue. Yeah, I I get you. That's fair. I think one of the one of the things that has happened is we get the ball into certain players. So I can't really speak to Saka. I don't actually remember that chance too well, but it doesn't surprise me. Particularly last season Saka used to frustrate me a little bit where he'd get into lots of good chances and he'd actually keep trying to you know, take an extra touch to fashion a better angle for himself and then it's too late. I think that's something he's generally been a lot better at this season at just taking the shot. I think this also this also applies to Odegaard, by the way, but both of them not trying to, you know, get it to 100% before they commit to their action, just thinking, okay, it's 80% what I want. Let me, let me gamble on it. And that has obviously reaped rewards for both of them. They're both on for double-doubles this season, Um, you know, 10 NPGs, 10 assists in the league. As for the rest of the team, I think what you what we have been seeing is that teams are happier to let like guys like Xhaka receive possession higher. Like if you're gonna go tight to someone, you're gonna really try force Odegaard not to have any space, even if that means you're opening up space for for Xhaka. And the reason why is because Xhaka is just not as tight in those areas and doesn't get the ball out of his feet quick enough. Um, and especially, you know, you can apply a little bit later pressure to him and you can force a mistake out of him. You can force him to go play backwards, right? So I think that's where I would say maybe we do lack that, like, cutting edge that I think we did see definitely in the first half versus Aston Villa. Um, and even, I would say, there were areas where it happened versus City, though I was actually quite happy with our first half. And then I think our second half, we just struggled under there. Their high press and their their um sort of formation, especially on a possession change against us. Yeah, I, I don't don't get me wrong. I think we played well in the first half against City. It was just a little bit frustrating because when you're playing in those kind of games where the margins are so tight, it feels like every opportunity you have has to go in, else you're just not going to win the game. And to see us work these opportunities that were really quite good and then not even get the shot away was really frustrating watching live. Yeah, no, I definitely get that. The one thing I do think is interesting, um, actually speaking about the City game, is the we were speaking about like in-game management of the team itself versus Brentford. But this is something I think is also worth speaking within the overall theme, maybe is also of predictability that we've been speaking about um, on this pod. But it's Arsenal's, not Arsenal's, it, but it's Arteta's lack of sort of tactical tweaks during games and his in-game management from there. So often people speak about, and we have on this pod spoken about his substitutions being a bit frustrating. For me particularly, 
just kind of putting a player who doesn't really fit the role that he's being put on for and just hoping that his different profile itself will make a difference rather than trying to tweak things so that the role suits him so that he can come on and do really well. I think what I often think back to is him bringing on Eddie and just putting him on the left earlier this season on for Martinelli and seeing what he can do where Eddie really sucks out wide as a left winger, right? Um, I think it kind of also factors into the fact that Arteta does struggle to respond to tactical stuff in game, whether he's just stubborn, too stubborn or whatever it is. But I mean, if we look at the, the, the city game, right? I think we came in really well with our tactics, went from that man to man, almost like 4-1-4-1 press high up against them building out. For City to go long, a lot more than you ever really see City do um, from goal kick situations. Um, really forced them to struggle. And then basically also they're out of possession shape. I was speaking about it just now is that narrow sort of shape. We also really had easy access out wide, easy access to the switch as well. I think it and also was set up really well for a counter pressing sort of situation when, you know, we'd lose the ball they'd have the ball, we'd immediately fall on them. Things changed at halftime. Pep immediately worked worked out stuff like the Bernardo Silva stuff wasn't working too well. I know people were sort of praising him for even having Bernardo Silva as, as a left back, but I think it worked a lot better for them in, in their game versus Aston Villa than it did when they didn't have as much possession of the ball. Um, obviously, he'd made that change only about 60 minutes, but right coming out in the second half, they pressed us a lot higher. They were braver. I think Pep obviously went for that mid-block to kind of copy what other teams have been doing against us too to stop that access. But because it was quite narrow, it didn't really work. So Pep made those mistakes, but then he quickly recognizes, changes them, pressed us high, which ultimately that high press did force two mistakes from us that led to their second and third goals. That actually coming after their 60-minute substitution Basically, Bernardo Silva went to the right wing to replace Mares, who came off. Kanji came on. Ake moved out to the left. And they basically copied our man-to-man high-press shape that we'd been using against them. And it worked really, really well. Capitalizing on guys like Gabriel and um, Jaka really struggling under those pressure situations, right? I think that's something Arteta still lacks as a coach having that bravery to kind of be ready to make those switches. Big tactical changes, you know, at halftime or even before, he doesn't really do that. The most as we even see him is like 80 minutes onwards, and even then it's quite rare. And I think if we look back and kind of tie that back into predictability, maybe it's also not so much that we're a predictable team, but we're not a solutions team in in the course of a match. that We don't make these changes during a course. So... For City, often, they're not a predictable team at all. We've spoken before about how they're maybe a little bit more predictable this year than they have been in the past. But they're not a predictable team. But sometimes things just don't work. Pep's very good about changing how what he needs to do um, yeah, to make those changes. I think that's something Arteta still lacks from his own perspective, like his own a look at his in-game, in-game management. Do you think that's in any way related to what we talked about earlier where... Arteta's kind of got this if it ain't broke, don't fix it mentality where like where he won't make a change until it's obvious that something's not working, whereas Pep's innate tinkererness might make <laughs> him more likely to 
anticipate these things and have these changes just ready to make on the fly. Yeah, for me, a hundred percent. I think I think it's a big part of it. Um, like people make fun of of Pep for like overthinking things sometimes, and to some extent, that is true. Like he he big brain stuff, and it doesn't work. But I think part of what's made him so successful as a coach is he's always hedging about like what next tactical thing does he have to do for the next game and the game after that. He's not, you know, something could be working ten games in a row. That doesn't mean he thinks he's going to need to go with it for the 11th. Whereas Arteta is very much like, this has been working. I'm going to stick with it. Okay, it didn't work this last game. Now I'm going to start making changes. And those are small changes where you still kind of see like Pep comes out on top in the aggregate, even if it doesn't work in one-off games sometimes. I also do want to touch on the Bernardo Silva thing, the whole Bernardo Silva thing, because... Uh, while it's something that has been discussed quite a bit in football podcasts that aren't this one in the week or so since we played City, it is one of the most interesting things we've seen an opposition manager do against us, and it didn't work. Uh, and I think it gives a really good insight into like the way that Pep's City work. Basically, what the point of that is, is that City use their left back a lot like we use Zinchenko, in that in possession, they'll come inside and form a double pivot. What Pep did is instead of having a left back who comes inside to form a pivot, he decided, what if we have a pivot that comes outside to form a left back? So kind of changing the priority of what that role is. They used that to pretty good effect in their game against Aston Villa that they played before us, where they had Bernardo Silva playing in this pivot with a back three behind him. And then when they lost the ball, Bernardo Silva would drop out to left back. However, that only really works when you have a lot of the ball. And as has been made quite a lot of noise about, in the first half against City, we had 60% of possession and City only had 40% of the ball, which meant that instead of being a pivot who had to sometimes play left back to make up for the fact that you got a really good ball-playing pivot in Bernardo Silva, Bernardo Silva was spending the majority of the time playing as a left-back, which he isn't really very good at. Which was really good for us, because Saka tore him to shreds, and in the end he got his yellow card, probably later than he should have done. And Pep was forced to change it by bringing on Akanji and moving Ake out to left-back and having a more traditional back four system. Pep clearly still thinks this is a good idea. Like, in the game that they played this weekend against Nottingham Forest, Bernardo Silva was playing at left-back again. So clearly it's something that Pep wants to persist with. It's just that against us, he overestimated the amount of possession that City would have and the amount of time Bernardo Silva would be playing in that pivot as opposed to playing at left-back. And so we forced City to have to change back to a more traditional system because we had the ball too much, which I think speaks really well to our control of the game in the first half. It's kind of funny how City and us have pretty much the same sort of in-possession shape mm. with uh, you know, the WM sort of shape with the box midfield. And I feel like City have kind of lent into... I'm not sure how much they were doing it before our game versus them, but they've definitely, it's the shape they've been going with since. And we've seen Bernardo Silva obviously 
you know, him alongside Rodri and then Gundogan or whoever and KDB next to them. Um, I think, yeah, part of that was, was the change was just Bernardo Silva was getting bodied by Saka. I, I guess the other part is that he did want to kind of match our shape a little bit, I guess. Another thing that I just made me think about, uh, you mentioned how it's like the same as what we do. If this has kind of been forgotten now, but Zinchenko coming through was an attacking midfielder. Like, making that change to put him at left-back really isn't dissimilar to what he was doing with Bernardo Silva. It was taking an attacking player, a creative player, and putting him in this role so they could use them in the build-up. And Zinchenko's just been doing that for so long that it's accepted that he's a left-back now. So, that's cool. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think I think when we speak about, like, the... I know I've been hearing, like, inverted and inverted, and I'm not really sure... Mm, that I watch City close enough to see the, the particular difference. I just think Bernardo Silva is better in those central spaces and City use him there quite early, but we do the same mm. with Zinchenko at times. Yeah, I, so I, it's I, just... I don't think there really is that much of a difference. The only difference is, like, in what you're prioritising, almost... Like, if you're playing someone there who's a natural midfielder, you're prioritising the in-possession shape when he's playing in the field. If you're playing someone there who's a more natural fullback, you're prioritising the back four shape defensively. For sure, for sure, for sure. Moving from one side of our in-possession pivot to the other side of our in-possession pivot, Jorginho has come in for the last two games to replace the injured Thomas Partey and has been getting some pretty rave reviews, especially in possession. Um, but we all do know in the back of our heads that this is a trade-off and that there are things that Thomas Partey does that we are just straight up missing when Jorginho plays. But also I think we can acknowledge that there's some stuff that Jorginho has been doing that Partey couldn't dream of. So, before we discuss the advantages and limitations of each player... Let's revisit a topic that we've talked about before on the podcast. What do we need from a defensive midfielder? So I think there's a lot that we need from our defensive midfielder. I think I would probably agree with someone if they said that it's the most important, from a tactical perspective, um, position in the team. Definitely defensively. Part of why that is is because we go very aggressively man-to-man. He is that spare guy who protects space zonally a little bit more, which means that what you A, need in terms of your defensive positioning is he needs to be able to recognize where he needs to be at all times. It's not as simple as just, there's your man, you need to be on him. You need to understand, okay, cool, I need to be situated between here, let's say with whoever sucker going out wide and pushing up on his man or Ben White pushing up on his man as well as protecting more central spaces in case the ball goes there. So A, you need to be able to judge where to be. It's not as simple, I would say. B, you also need to be able to react to those situations really, really well. So say it does go to the ball becomes free in a certain area, you need to understand where you need to move to protect it. You need to have the mobility to be able to get there. And then also, I think, having that understanding of when to engage and when to to hold your position as well as the dueling ability to win to win your battles, right? Not let balls go past you. I, I think we can say here that in terms of the defensive responsibilities of a defensive midfielder, Jorginho 
is pretty good at A, pretty good at knowing where to be, but he lacks a lot of B in terms of the mobility and the physicality to actually act if he needs to make a defensive action. Yeah, so this is my thing. Like, people people were saying, I remember having discussions that Jorginho isn't good in terms of his position defensively, and I don't agree. I think he's pretty good at understanding the zones. What I will say is, when we go high, Jorginho still has a good understanding of where to be, but because he doesn't have that B, he doesn't have that mobility, I think the calculations that he has to make in his head about whether to commit or whether to hold off become a lot more crucial for him in terms of timing, which does tend to almost rush him a bit more. You can see he feels he feels a bit more vulnerable high up, which does lead to him making sometimes the wrong choice. Or even what I would say, and, and we can maybe speak to both city goals, right? I don't think his positioning was particularly bad in either of them, especially given that our role puts a lot of stress on just the ability of the the six to be able to to react to a situation and then be able to, if the situation changes, know exactly what to do afterwards. And not only knowing what to do, being able to act on it. I think Jorginho does know what to do, but because he doesn't have the ability to act on it, it's that second thing that, you know, he's positioned well, but then now the action's happened. That's where his decision-making can become a little bit more off. Like, does he come close or does he go far? And I don't think it's because he's bad in those situations. But it's because he, the margin of error for him is so small because he doesn't have that recovery pace or that dueling ability to to make up for it in the yeah. way that Partey can come close. Okay, the ball's been switched to that side and then go and chase back, right? Yeah, it's like Partey's physicality gives him more options than Jorginho yes. does when making those little calculations in his head of where to be, what to do. Like, there'll be situations where Jorginho will be in... In theory, the perfectly right spot, but because he, as as you said, because he lacks that physicality, that's actually the wrong spot. He needs to be somewhere slightly more conservative in order to. But this make is my those thing: challenges. is that it's tough, right? Because I think he is in the right spot. It's just it's almost like the role doesn't fit him exactly. Because if he isn't in that spot, then there's more spacing where the team, the opposition team, can can make use of. So you do want your six coming close. What what we use a lot is we use a very intense counter press a lot of the time, right? So you do want your six close to those areas. It gives the other team less options, and I think Jorginho does well then. But it's when the team maybe acts on another option, Jorginho doesn't have that ability to shift across and protect another space. What I would maybe, maybe let's go really dig into it. Um, I would speak about, I think it was City's second goal, which was around, what, 71 minutes in? Mm-hmm. Bernardo Silva had already moved out to the right. Those changes changes had happened, right? And basically what happens is we lose the ball, Gabriel, under quite a aggressive City high press. It comes to Bernardo Silva. And what you have now is Gabriel's been pulled out of position. He's been caught out of position. And you want Jorginho's in a sort of position close, which is the right position to be for what we want for the six, to close the space, to halve the pitch, to prevent them to be able to come across. And he sees that Bernardo Silva's almost got this option open to Gundogan, who is free himself. What what happens then is that just partly because of the pure quality of the players that we are talking about with 
with City, and this is one of the things, they just have a lot of really, really good players, unfortunately, for us, is that he changes the angle, and he plays through Haaland, who has now completely lost Gabriel, and is in behind. What happens then, is Saliba comes across, and he leaves, he leaves that sort of free space, he comes across onto, to Haaland, which then brings Tomiyasu coming more central, to pick up Gundogan which leaves Grealish far. What we normally have in this situation, and this is a situation that has happened before against us, is we have Partey being able to recover really, really well, getting back into the center of the pitch to kind of block off the that back pass. If not block off the pass out to Grealish, being able to get in front of Grealish by the time the ball gets to him. Jorginho is just not quick enough to get back there in time. So Grealish is completely, basically one-on-one with the keeper when it gets to him. And these are the sort of situations that I think where it's very difficult and where Jorginho can be taken advantage of is because even though he's taking up those good scent, like initial positions, it's reacting to situations, having the mobility to react to situations which he just lacks, as well as the dueling once he gets there. It's kind of ironic, isn't it, that Jorginho's biggest weakness in terms of out of possession stuff is reacting to when the play changes whereas in possession one of the biggest things he gives us is the ability to be a release valve and switch the play over to the other side like i lost count of the number of times in the city game in the villa game where he just received the ball turned nicely played it over to the other side played it over to the center backs got us out of some tight pressing situations and you can see it even further up the pitch as well. He'll pop up in and around the 18-yard box. Like, we've been seeing Jorginho comps of him in the Villa game, right? That's how much people appreciate how well he's been doing in possession. And one clip that always makes it in there is over on the on the right-hand side of the box. He's, like, in by Saka and White. Receives the ball with, like, three Villa players around him. Does this, like almost awkward turn around all of them and then plays the ball out to Ben White. And he doesn't just do that like in and around the box. He's doing that when he's getting pressed by an opposition high press um, up by the halfway line as well. So in possession, his press resistance and ability to find the right pass at the right time has been so, so useful for us. See, this is the thing. Like, this is the compromise, right? Or the, the balance that we have to, to judge, um, the cost benefit analysis is that on the one side, we have Partey, who is just an incredible part of the rest defense, really good at defending transitions, um, and a better defender overall. Though I do think Jorginho's positioning has been pretty good. And yeah, yeah, he did intercept quite a few good passes. Uh, but especially when he's getting caught higher in those sort of transition moments. He's a weakness. But in possession, I think he's honestly streets ahead of what we get from Partey. Um, we've spoken about this a lot on the pod. I think Partey's got really good execution on some of his longer passing. That, you know, that's the sort of stuff that catches the eye. And also Partey is really press-resistant, good at carrying through pressure. Important things. But the problem with Partey is, A, his pass selection. We spoke about this back on the Everton pod. He's quite easy for the press to shepherd because... If he's not trying to play these like hero balls through the middle, he is always looking for like, he'll pick the option left open to him, which means that the press knows how to react to that pretty easily 
in that game. It was leaving open Martinelli, leaving open Saka. He doesn't even try probe too much. He immediately sees it. He'll play that pass. Besides that, um, he can be a little bit sloppy at times with his shorter passing. These aren't things that you really see with Jorginho. He's like almost a juggernaut. Um, I remember Jamie Scott speaking about it. It really is in terms of a shorter passing game. What I really like about it, though, is that you were speaking about switching the play. It's even those just those small changes of direction. That not being shepherded, that probing aspect that you add, that really gives us a lot more in possession. And it was something that we already saw in the Everton game. He wasn't getting shepherded as as easily. And we were actually building some really nice attacks from deep. And it really does show how important the six is in informing where the attack builds and how important that is. I really like that about what Jorginho adds to our play. Um, and yeah, just being able to find those central channels and stuff. He makes us a lot less predictable in possession than Partey does. And another aspect I'll speak about is Partey's positioning in possession. Positioning out of possession, perfect. Positioning in possession is average. He'll normally sit behind the block or whatever and he'll receive, and he only really thinks about his next pass once he receives. Jorginho will move up close, he'll he'll try find these open channels. He won't always necessarily just focus on being the open person to pass to, but he'll lo- be looking for almost being the secondary pass, like let's say Saliba passes out to Tomiyasu. Jorginho is already ready to be Tomiyasu's pass, whereas Partey would still be trying to be Saliba's pass, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And this is something we see a lot more higher up. I think the Aston Villa game was perfect example of how many times Jorginho was actually getting into nice little pockets to play that final ball, or or the the ball before the final ball, which is not something you see too often from Partey. And it's really shown me a lot of, in terms of how how much the system still has to go when we have someone that smart in possession, um, when they're on the ball in terms of their positioning, in terms of the pass selection that they make. In terms of also the tempo, I think, is another thing. And maybe we're getting a bit too tactical there, but there is a sense of tempo, a sense of rhythm, sense of understanding of where the next pass has to go. That with Partey, it just lacks that extra, that edge, that nuance sort of feeling in the in the opposition half. Yeah, the tempo was actually something I was going to bring up. Because especially in the context of we were talking about earlier, how we were rushing too much in the Brentford game, I said that we were being hesitant in the City game and in the Villa game first half, but those were really in like the final moments, like the making the final pass, making the final shot. Like in terms of our build-up play in general, I think our tempo was really good, and I think Jorginho has was playing a big part in that. Like I can't think of a better phrase of it than he keeps us ticking over, like. He'll receive the ball and then play it off, like, not quickly, but, like, at a good pace. Like, he's not going to dally on the ball. Like, he's not going to give the opposition an opportunity to recover back to where they need to be. He's going to get it, and he's going to give it. He's going to get it, and he's going to give it consistently over and over again, whether it be a simple pass to a centre-back or a line-splitting pass to an Erdegaard or Martinelli. This is the thing, like, it's not just get giving and getting, it's always with an idea. And mm. that's what I think, what I think we've lacked, even with Partey when he does play that sort of, like, recycle game. Though I think we can both agree that he doesn't really do it with, with the same sort of voluminous nature that we, we see from Jorginho or even Xhaka when he was playing in that role before, before Arteta even, right? 
um, there is that extra aspect of an idea and it does add that extra maturity to our aspect, uh, uh, to add that extra maturity to our play. I think I would have loved to actually see him come on against Brentford. I spoke about how I think we were being too wasteful, too much, too much rushing, not enough smartness and moving the ball around the block, um, trying to manufacture those openings. I think Partey is someone who doesn't really add to us in that aspect. I don't think Brentford were actually that much of a threat in transition. I think we kept Partey on because just protecting from set pieces where we were already struggling, fair enough. But I think having someone like Jorginho, we would have been able to, to pull them apart a lot better. We're not quite sure how long Partey is going to be out. That is a weakness of us as a podcast, not doing our research. But like, I think over the next few weeks, it will be interesting to see how Jorginho continues to like grow into this system and how the system evolves around him because I think it's really good how much positive stuff we've been seeing from him in possession and he's only been with us three weeks so as Jorginho gets more of an understanding of his teammates as our team gets more of an understanding of Jorginho I think we're going to see even more of the benefits of his ability in possession. The last thing I want to say about Jorginho is that I love that people speak about him as this like godly technical passer where I really don't think he is. I think all of his passing strengths generally come from like knowledge of when to release the pass, timing of the pass, um, and, and pass selection rather than actually being, you know, having this maybe Odegaard or Gundogan sort of ability to, to break the, or, or Rodri to perfectly weight his passes. I think that's actually something that lacks, he lacks in that elite level. It's that pass selection that makes him so elite. Yeah, that and, that and, and having the, I guess the technique receiving and turning and, and moving with the, like rotating with the ball to be able to execute that, the timing of that pass so well, because he's always well situated to play it. I think that's what makes him so good. But yeah, ultimately I'm really happy with him as a player so far. I think there are huge downsides to him that we don't have. I think Partey should be starting over him because defending, you know, the defensive side is so important for that six. Um, but it, it really does make me think about the player that we need is someone who has both of those aspects or at least 80% to as good as each of them is the one that I really want to see at our six, in our six position from next season onwards. Obviously not the point of the pod, but we should get Romeo Lavia. <laughs> yeah, we should. Um, right. <laughs> We've not got much time left to record, and we have got a couple more things that we want to talk about. Uh, so I'm going to cherry pick the ones that I think we want to talk about more. Um, we've been seeing on the internets uh, William Saliba getting a little bit of flack for his recent performances. Uh, and Alex, I know you feel that he's actually been doing all right. So I've got a timer on my phone, and I'm going to give you one minute to defend William Saliba to the masses. Ready, steady, go. <laughs> okay, I think the thing with Saliba is since the World Cup, people have been criticizing him. Whew, I feel like I'm on the clock here. Um, you are, very literally. I am on the clock. Okay, well, let's not waste time speaking about that. <laughs> I think Saliba's been really, really great, except the matches where he's done badly do stand out. And that's because Saliba has one huge weakness, which is his aerial vulnerability. And that he got absolutely got ragdolled by Tony in the Brentford game. That really does stand out. I think right after the World Cup, he had one or two big mistakes. I think he wasn't great versus Brighton. But other than that, he's been huge. I think 
he's incredibly important. We spoke about playing against the grain earlier. I think that's something that Saliba does really, really well. Right from the back line, just beating that press, playing it back inside. Um, and then besides that, he's just great at judging rest defensive situations. I think Aston Villa with Jorginho in the six rather than give me a little bit longer. No, rather than <laughs> rather than Partey, it was really important that Saliba kind of dealt in with all of those situations, and he did. He's very good at judging when to cut, when not, when to press tightly one v one, when to be able to and how tightly. I think it also handled Haaland really well in the City game. Um, we can speak about this more at some other point. Yeah, that was more like a minute and 30 seconds, but you know what? We'll take <laughs> it. Uh, we're going to end the podcast there. We've talked about some of the things we wanted to talk about, not all of them, but that's okay. Very quickly, I've got the trivia book out. Um, which of these midfielders returned to the club as a technical director? Should get this one right. Eddie. Ian- yes correct uh that's the (laughs) thank you very much for listening if you've enjoyed this podcast make sure to leave us a like or a review or follow us on twitter at potshot pod you can follow me on twitter at alex towels you can follow collings on twitter at alex frco we are going to be endeavoring to get podcast episodes out every tuesday from now on this one's going to come out on wednesday from next week they will be out every tuesday i'm saying it's gonna happen all right so we've committed this to audio now, to podcast. Every, new scary. episodes every Tuesday from next week onwards. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you there. Uh, Alex, say goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>